what a privilege it is that I get to worship with you and eat breakfast and eat good food and open the word of God this morning. So thank you all for allowing me to do this. And I want to begin this morning by asking you a bit of a rhetorical question. Uh, It has literally no clear answer. And my college students are all going, oh my goodness, not another McGill question that makes no sense. But I promise it'll actually work. What is the difference between Dumb and Dumber and the Mona Lisa? Really, really clear question, right? Um, And the answer is, one is a movie and the other one is a very, very classical piece of artwork And it's a terrible, terrible intro, but I promise it's going somewhere, so just follow me. One is a comedy movie, and the other one is a beautiful masterpiece. They are both brilliant, just in their own respective ways. But if we were to appreciate them in the same exact manner, I think we would be sorely disappointed. If we tried to look at Dumb and Dumber the same way that we would observe the Mona Lisa, we would walk away going, what on earth is that? And if we tried to laugh and make a comedy out of the Mona Lisa, we would rob it of its beauty. Because in a movie, you see this plot unfold. You see characters develop. You see a climax, a rising action, and a conclusion, and plot twists. And you get to see that in Dumb and Dumber, and it's brilliant. But when you look at a beautiful painting like the Mona Lisa, you're not exactly looking for plot twists. You're not looking for a character development. You're not looking for rising action or falling action. No, instead you're looking for contrasting colors. You're looking for the emotions of the painter or the the countenance of the face. You look at how the dark background makes the brighter colors pop off the canvas or how the different colors complement each other. And so, too, it is when we approach the Psalms. If we approach the Psalms like we would, say, the book of Mark or another narrative within the the Scriptures, I think we are approaching it incorrectly or inappropriately. I think instead we should approach the Psalms as we would the Mona Lisa, as a painting. We should be looking at what the author is trying to, to compare or contrast, or looking for the dark background to highlight the light coming through. The Psalms are often conveying deep emotions. So the questions we should ask it aren't, hey, what is the plot? What is the author trying to communicate to us? It's, what's their attitude? What is their emotion? Certain things like that. Not so much what is the story he is trying to tell, but what is the picture that he is trying to paint? And so, with all of that in mind, it was a terrible example, but hopefully it's stuck in your brains. I want to approach Psalm 5 this morning as a painting. And I think what we will see in this painting is that David paints very masterfully his heart for God's kingdom. And I I think he paints specifically the purity and righteousness of God's kingdom. And we're going to see him contrast the wicked people with his own righteousness, but more so uh, the righteousness of the people in God's kingdom. 
And I think something that we're going to learn this morning is that David saw two paths that were before him. And then he saw two destinations at the end of those paths. And he was faced with one choice to make. So if you are a note taker, we are going to look at the two paths that are described by David. Then we are going to look at the two destinations that he describes, and then we will conclude with one choice. So there are only two paths that you can go down that lead to two destinations, and it all depends on one choice. So let me pray, and we will dive in. Jesus, give us your grace, your mercy, and your righteousness. Lead us in the righteous path. Allow us to to see the truth of your scriptures, the the truth of your word, and would they shape us and form us and conform us into your likeness. Jesus, we're dependent on you. We're dependent on your grace and your mercy and your righteousness. Be here, speak to us, uh, and, and allow us to worship you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so before we look at the two paths, David kind of sets us up. He kind of sets the scene a little bit, and I just want to quickly look at it, and then we'll get into the paths. So in the first couple verses, it says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. And the first thing we get to see is David, and it kind of looks like he is on his knees. And so if this is a a painting, I want us to visualize David on his knees in the morning, praying out to God. And in his prayer, it says in three various ways, which is actually a Hebrew literary tool to signify importance, but it says in three different ways that David wants to be heard by God. And because we're approaching this like a painting, imagine with me the psalm is painting this picture of David on his knees at the foot of his bed with the sun rising in the east because it's the morning. And then as, it kind of, as we kind of zoom in on his face, it looks like he's in agony, almost as if he's in pain. He has deep anguish that he is wearing on his face, almost like he's hurting And at the very least, it is him praying and pleading with God about something. And then he gives us a few clues as to what he might be pleading to God about. And one of those clues is how he identifies God. He says, my king. So he identifies God as his king. Therefore, we can kind of take the hint that God is, or that David is thinking about the kingdom of God versus maybe another kingdom. And then as we zoom out of David praying at the foot of his bed in the morning, we begin to see these two paths that are laid out before him. And beyond those two paths, there are two destinations. One is the path of wickedness filled with lies and deceit, and its end, its destination, is destruction. And then the other path is the path of the righteous, and it's filled with joy and security, and it leads to the kingdom of God. That's, it. That's its final destination. And look at how David starts to paint this picture. 
Look in verses four through six. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. How about that for a picture? Also notice the amplifying descriptors of how God feels. It starts with, he does not delight, and then God hates, and he ends with, God abhors. There's that three, there's that Hebrew literary device that David is using to show the severity of how much God despises this. And when we look at what God hates and what he gets so upset by, we start to see that God hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hates prideful evildoers and he abhors murderers and liars. And then David goes in verses 7 and 8 to describe the other path. Look at that with me. In verse 7 it says, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So here we have a totally different path. This path is marked by God's steadfast love, worshiping at his holy temple, and the straight paths are before you. This one is talking about entering into a house. It's being led by righteousness. It's being led by the Lord himself. And if I'm honest, that sounds way better than being destroyed, abhorred, and, and wicked like the other path, right? But notice the language that David uses to describe these two paths. He sees the road of the wicked, and he knows that he doesn't want to walk down there. And then he looks at the road of the righteous and realizes that he can't walk down there. Then he looks at both of the roads and he has this deep anguish because he knows that he shouldn't walk here and that he can't walk here. And the reason we know that is because look at how he describes it. He says, through the abundance of God's steadfast love will he enter it. That's a future tense. He's not on the road yet. Also, a side note, as we're going through the Psalms, Whenever you see the abundance of steadfast love in the Old Testament, that's like a, it, it's essentially God's grace. The, the Hebrew word for steadfast love is the same word that we would translate into grace. And so whenever you see that, think grace. So David goes, only by the grace of God would I be able to walk down the righteous path. Then David describes the scene of how he will, in the future tense, bow down in the temple, which is a picture of him seeking God's mercy, because the temple is where people went to offer sacrifices, appealing to God for his mercy. So David says that he can only embark on the righteous path if he has the grace of God and the mercy of God. And then, it is only if the Lord's righteousness would lead, that would lead him, can he walk on this path? Not his own righteousness, but only through the Lord's righteousness. 
So there's this imagery of David being wholly and completely dependent upon the grace, mercy, and righteousness of God. Therefore, it doesn't appear that David is actually walking on the paths yet. Because David is praying in the morning, and he is using future tense, and he's sitting there in agony praying to the Lord. And I think it's because he looks at this disconnect of where he knows he's not supposed to go down, and that he realizes that he can't, in and of himself, go down the other path. And over the past few months of my life, this has actually kind of been my story. Every morning, I wake up, and I have two paths that I can walk down. One path is the path that God has set before me and has called me to walk, and the other path is filled with lies that my heart is so tempted to believe. And one of the biggest lies in my heart that I'm always tempted to believe is that I'm not enough, that I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not likable enough, I'm not good-looking enough, that I'm just not enough. And these lies that my heart is so tempted to believe It fills me with anxiety, depression, with worry. I was just talking with my wife the other night, and I was telling her, I'm even afraid to answer my phone because I might hear somebody say, you're not enough. These lies put me in a fight or flight mode at all times. And I feel like I'm always trying to prove myself, and I'm always failing. And what makes it so tricky is it's not just like a few moments here and there. It's all day. It's from the moment I wake up to the moment that I fall asleep. And have you ever heard of this this idea of a frog in boiling water? Are Are you guys familiar with that? Where a frog won't jump into boiling water, but if you start him off at room temperature and slowly raise the water temperature up, he won't jump out. He'll eventually be boiled alive. That's how I feel most days. I don't even realize that these lies are affecting me until my life is boiling around me. And I'm on edge and I'm ready to fight or flight. And it's all because of these lies that I'm not enough. And my heart is tempted to just accept this as my new norm. But as I've wrestled with this text, as I've wrestled with Psalm 5 over the past couple of weeks, the Lord has given me a new hope. He has, given his, he has given me his truth to fight against these lies. This text has pushed me to cry out to God, just like David in the morning, to recite what I know is true about God and what is true about me. And to realize that apart from God's grace and his mercy and his righteousness, I am not enough. And I don't even have a chance at being enough. But with the Lord's righteousness, with his grace, and with his mercy, I am far more than enough. And when I remember that, that takes me down the brighter path. 
which goes to the brighter destination. But when I forget that, when I believe the lies, that's when I choose to walk down the dark path which leads to the dark destination. It leads to destruction. And that is precisely what David illustrates, that when you buy into these lies, it leads down the path to destruction. Look at verses 9 and 10. Look at how he describes the destination. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt. Oh God, let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Here's this imagery of destruction, open graves, bearing guilt, which in the temple meant death, being cast out of the presence of God and his people. It is a bleak destination. If ever there was a dark background to be painted, this is it. David has taken out the black paint and is painting with broad brush strokes. And he is describing in these verses the destination of the wicked path. The wicked path leads to a destination that has no joy, there is no life, and it is filled with destruction. And this destination is far from the presence of God. It is far from the people who love you and the worst of it all we actually deserve to go there. This destination is actually where we deserve to be. It is most certainly where King David deserves to be. And when we looked at David earlier and he seemed to be agonizing over something, it was because he knew that he actually deserved to be in this dark destination. And it drove him to his knees to pray for God's pure and righteous kingdom to be realized in his life. And if we are to join in with David, then I believe that all starts with us recognizing that we really deserve to be cast out, destroyed and separated from the joy and the love of God. In the New Testament, Paul uses this psalm, verse 9, to actually illustrate this point. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is making the case that every single person has rebelled and is deserving of the destination described in this passage. And providence, before we get to the good news, before we look at the bright colors that David is actually about to paint with, I want us to really Look at this darkness because in a good painting, the darkest of colors makes the brighter colors shine all the more. The darkest of colors makes the brighter colors shine all the more. So let us look at the darkness of this destination. Paul says that there is no righteous person in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is no one that seeks after God, and there is no one perfect person. And the temptation in my heart is to think, 
well, I'm not that bad. My sin isn't that heinous. I mean, I may not be perfect, but I certainly don't deserve destruction. I certainly don't deserve to end up in the dark destination described by David here. But hear me, please, when I say this. We all do. In comparison to the holiness and perfection of God, we don't even come close. Even our greatest acts of kindness are tainted by our sin. Even our best attempts of selfless love are marred with imperfection. And if we don't believe that, then either we have a diminished view of God's holiness or a distorted view of how sinful we are. We all are far more sinful than we think we actually are. And God is far more holy and righteous than we can possibly imagine. And a common question that I think we ask ourselves or that uh, comes up in our hearts is a very heavy one. And it's the question, how can an all-loving God send people to hell? And that's a profound and weighty question. And the implications of this question weigh on our hearts more than, I think, many other questions. But might I suggest that it's, it's not really a fair question. And he, here's what I mean by that. That question, how can an all-loving God send people to hell, implies that we actually deserve salvation. That question minimizes the offense of our sin, and it also doesn't take into account the holiness and righteousness of God. Providence, because of our sin, no matter how great or how little we may think that is, we deserve We deserve hell. We deserve to be destroyed, cast out, and punished because God is so holy. Because he is so perfect. He is so utterly and completely righteous, and we are not. And we have turned from him. We have worshipped other things and effectively hated God by our actions And as such, we cannot be in his presence. It would be one thing if we were imperfect. If we were just a little bit imperfect or a little bit incomplete, God could sprinkle a little perfection on us and then we might be okay. But if we're honest, we know what is right and we haven't done it. We've chosen to not do it. We have known that God is worthy of being worshipped and we have chosen to give our time, our talent, and our resources elsewhere. We know that God is God because we can see it in his creation, but we have exchanged the glory of our creator for things created by man. So with that in mind, the question, how can an all-loving God send people to hell, 
then becomes how can a righteous and perfect and holy God allow sinners into his presence? How can God overlook sin? How can he forgive our rebellion? How can God save people who are so incredibly undeserving? Providence, we deserve the dark destination described by David in this passage. Okay, let's come up for air now. That was really dark. And that was really heavy, and that was really on purpose. And it's because I want us to notice the darkness of our situation so that the brightness of Christ will shine through all the more. David has been painting with the black paint for the background, and now he is about to bust out all of the bright colors and put a big old cross on it. Are you with me? So let's get there. Let's get there. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now that is bright and beautiful colors. Am I right? Thank you. This new destination is marked by joy and by refuge, by blessing and by favor. There is singing. There is rest. There is life in this destination. There is no darkness. There is no destruction. There is no sorrow. No enemies. It is filled with light. And if it were a painting, it would have warm and brilliant, bright yellows and oranges And it would be beautiful and vibrant. And it is particularly colorful because it is cast against an ultra-dark background. And here is where this painting gets even brighter. Notice the language with which David uses to describe this. David says that rejoicing happens in the refuge of the Lord. That protection comes from within God himself, and we are exalted in the Lord. Blessing comes from the Lord. Righteousness comes from the Lord. We are covered with favor by the Lord. Not an ounce of any of this comes from within ourselves or is earned by our efforts. Nothing in this picture comes from some inherent goodness that we possess or good works that we do. This final destination is the kingdom of God. It is pure, it is righteous, it is good, and the best part of it all, it is in and with God himself. And to make it even brighter, when it is contrasted against the bleak and black background of our other destination... That's the one that we earn and the one that God himself earns and it is secure in God is the brighter and more beautiful destination. So then we ask the question, well, how do I get in that one and how do I stay out of that one? How do I get to the bright destination and how do I stay out of the dark and bleak one? And I would say it comes down to one choice. 
We have two paths that lead to two destinations and it all comes down to one choice. Just like David in this psalm, we have the choice to walk down the path of the righteous, which leads to the kingdom of God, or we have the choice to walk down the path of the wicked, which leads to destruction. But let us not lose sight of the reality of our situation. Providence, we cannot choose righteousness on our own. We cannot walk the righteous path on our own. We cannot end up in the kingdom of God and experience the purity and holiness of God on our own. David recognized that he was utterly and completely dependent on the grace, mercy, and righteousness that comes from God himself. And he knew that apart from the Lord going before and leading him, he had no hope of joy, of protection, or blessing. And this is good news, because the Lord has gone before us. Jesus has gone before us, hasn't he? He has provided us the way to walk the righteous path and enter the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus is our way. If you are in Christ, you will enter the house of God. Because of Christ, you will receive grace. You will receive mercy. You will receive righteousness. You will receive refuge. And if you are in Christ, you will have joy. You will have protection. You will be exalted with him. We have been blessed because of him. And the reason that is true is because he actually was treated how we deserve to be treated. Because we, remember, we deserve to be treated like God's enemy. But Jesus was destroyed. He bore our guilt. He was cast out because of our transgressions. Jesus took on the dark path that we were supposed to walk, and he conquered the dark destination that we deserved so that in him we can walk in righteousness and spend eternity in the kingdom of God. And the one choice now we have is will you believe that? And will you live out of that? We have two paths, we have two destinations, and we have one choice. Will you put your faith in Jesus and be found in him? Or will you choose to reject your only way to salvation? Will you surrender your entire life to the one true eternal king? Or will you continue in a half-hearted, lukewarm belief that God is kind of real and that he's kind of important? If we all deserve the dark destination, then our only hope is Christ and Christ alone. If the question of how can a perfect and holy God save sinners like you and me, the answer is in Christ and Christ alone. How can a holy and perfect God look over sin? The answer is he didn't. He poured it all out on Jesus for, on our behalf. The only way that we can escape the darkness that we deserve is whether or not we are hidden in Christ himself. Our only hope in life and death is whether or not we receive the grace, mercy, and righteousness of Christ. And as 
If we do, then as surely as Christ belongs in the kingdom of God, we too will belong in the kingdom of God. As surely as Christ himself is filled with joy, purity, and perfection, through faith in him, you will also be filled with joy, purity, and perfection. And as surely as God hears the cries of the righteous, if you are found in Christ, then he will hear you and come to your aid. There are two paths that lead to two destinations, and you have one choice. Will you be found in Christ, or will you receive what you deserve? Let me pray. Jesus, would you save You alone can save. It is through your power alone that we can be saved. God, we do deserve destruction. We do deserve the dark path. But because of your steadfast love, because of your mercy, and because of your righteousness, you have provided us a way to be hidden in your house. You have provided a way for us to be righteous through your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you have taken on what we deserve and given us what we don't deserve. You have given us life, joy, and abundance. And I pray this morning that all of us here at Providence would reflect on what we deserve and then remember what you did. And remember that because you took on what we deserve, we actually get, Jesus, what you deserve. Jesus, we're thankful for for your sacrifice on our behalf and for giving us your righteousness. So would we believe that and live out of it? God, help us walk on the bright path that leads to the bright destination and prevent us from walking down the path of the wicked that leads to destruction. Keep us in your grace, keep us in your mercy, and keep us in your hands. In the name of Jesus, amen.